0: Let's uh, read together John chapter 3. Our topic for today is, Does God love me just as I am? You've heard that song on those uh, Billy Graham calling time. Does God love me just as I am? Does God love me unconditionally? Let us read a portion from Scripture that I will not preach from, but I will use it as an excuse to bring this subject. John chapter 3, we will read verses 1, or actually 3 to 18. John 3, 3 to 18. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man." Just as Moses lifted up the serpent or the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's only begotten Son. May God add the reading or the blessing to the reading of His Word. The subject for this morning is, does God love me as I am? Does God love me or love people Unconditionally. And I always ask, what exactly are we meaning or what are we desiring to ask with that question? Do we want to ask something that exalts us? Something that elevates us? Or are we really interested in knowing about who God is and his character? Because depending on what are we after, the question may have a different answer or a different connotation in the answer. Perhaps I could ask you the question, do we love our children as they are? Do we love our spouses as they are? Do we love those who are close to us as they are? And we're not God, so the illustration breaks down. But if we say, well, yes, okay, what does that mean then? That we accept, tolerate, and do not even make any attempt to change those things that are wrong in those we love? And we'd say, of course not. Okay, then we have some common ground to address the issue of, does God love without conditions? Does God love me just as I am, does God accept me just as I am? Before we deal with the answers, let me give something about the context of the words of John 3.16, perhaps the most known passage in the whole Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whosoever believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. What is the context of those words? Well, these teacher in Israel, this rabbi comes to Jesus. This master of masters, this principal in the synagogue, the teacher in Israel. Because that's how Jesus calls him. You are the teacher in Israel. You are the highest authority rabbi in this system. And you're not understanding what I'm trying to tell you. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, we know that you have come from God. We know. We, we are the Pharisees. We know the law. We know the prophets. We know what scripture says about Messiah. You've complied with everything. He tells a lot about the hardness of heart of the Pharisees. They knew, but they chose to not believe. Now, Jesus does not return the compliment. He doesn't return the favor. He's not kind of cordial. Thank you, Nicodemus. I appreciate that you know that. He just tells him, off the bat. Unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And this wonderful dialogue starts between the two. And in that dialogue, Jesus says some things about salvation that are of theological supreme importance. Sometimes we talk about the new birth and being born again. And there was a time in the 70s or in the 60s, I forget when exactly, that this being a born-again Christian was a thing. What does that mean? Well, John says in the in the words of Jesus what it means. It means a rebirth. It means what Paul calls in another place, regeneration. When a person is saved, they have to be made alive. They have to be regenerated. They have to be Born from above. It is not just a, Oh, this is nice. I like your religion. I like your group. How can I join? No, no. Coming to the kingdom, coming to salvation, implies that you are made new from the inside. Literally reborn, regenerated. It implies that you are washed and cleansed from sin. You have to be born of water and the Spirit. And for the Jews, even the Muslims use the same. It's a very Middle Eastern thing. comes from the Old Testament. And water means cleansing, washing. You heard Troy explain this morning what is expiation. It is to be cleansed. It is to be forgiven of sin. The water had that element of forgiveness, to be born again, to enter the kingdom. You have to have your sins forgiven. You have to be washed from the inside. This salvation, this new birth, is also God's work. Jesus says you have to be born of the Spirit. Whatever is flesh, flesh remains. To be saved, the Spirit of God has to make you alive. It is a work of God. It is not something we muster up somehow in ourselves. It is not something that we make some effort, we start changing. Alex Soler was telling me this morning how he lost his first 75 pounds. If you remember Alex before, he was he was twice the size he is today. He says, Alex, what, how did you do it? He says, I stopped eating. I just started to eat less and that was it for me. And and, and this This was an amazing effort. He was telling me how hard it is just to cut what you eat normally. Well, new regeneration, new birth, is not an effort. Let me make an effort to cleanse myself, to clean my life. No, it is a work of the Spirit. It's miraculous. It is from above. It has nothing to do with our own effort. It is an invisible event with discernible effects. This is something that sometimes we forget. Because we think, oh, salvation is when I raised my hand and walked down the aisle. Nothing to do with that. Salvation is when I prayed the sinner's prayer. Nothing to do with that. Salvation is when I joined the church and became a member of the church. Nothing to do with that. Salvation is when I got baptized. Nothing to do with that. Salvation is something that only God knows when it happens. People ask me, when did you come to the Lord? I say, well, I remember praying a prayer on September 28th, 1980. But I really came to the Lord this morning when I prayed. Because every morning when I pray, I tell the Lord always the same thing. Unless it were because of Jesus, I could not even be praying to you. Have mercy on me, Son of David. Receive me, O God, in the name of your Son. So salvation is a mysterious, invisible thing. But its effects are visible and are manifest like the wind. You don't see the wind, but you feel it. If it comes in the form of a tornado or a storm or a hurricane, even more, Jesus uses the same example to illustrate salvation. And Nicodemus becomes bewildered. What are you talking about? What is this? How can I? I'm an old man. How can I get into my mother's womb again? What are you saying? And Jesus says, I'm just telling you earthly things. Imagine if I would tell you about the things of where I come from. And he becomes completely bewildered, and Jesus takes the opportunity to affirm his authority as the one who's in the bosom of the Father, the Son of God, Messiah, and tell him of his mission. And also, Jesus tells him, "By the way, you remember that story of Moses when he lifted up the serpent in the desert, when the Jews were bitten by serpent as a as a judgment from God." And God told him, make a serpent of bronze, lift it up. Whomever looks at the serpent of bronze will be healed from the poison of the serpents. That was just a type. That was just a symbolism of one day the Son of God being lifted up on a cross. And whomever looks to him in faith would be saved and healed just as the Jews were in the desert. And Jesus tells Nicodemus about his mission. And then we come to the famous John 3.16. And who said John 3.16? Some commentators debate over that. Is this Jesus saying, for God so loved the world? Or is this an editorial comment by John, the gospel writer? The answer is, who cares? I don't know. It could, be, it could go either way. And it's funny to see people arguing. Well, those were Jesus' words, and they start connecting things. No, there's a, there's a kind of a pause in the narrative, and then this is actually John making the comment. Who cares? It's a scripture. It's still true. Let me make just a little remark about red annotated Bibles. You have some of those? Nothing wrong with red letter Bibles. But there's a danger. You know what the danger is? Oh, if it's red, Jesus said it. It's more important than the black part. No. When it was written, there was no color, there was no ink color in the original writing, and all of it is the Word of God. Caveat about comment or commented Bible. Oh, I have MacArthur's study Bible. No, I have the Reformation study Bible. Awesome. Read the Bible. Not what MacArthur or what the Reformation Study Bible writes about the passage. It is the Bible that is the Word of God. Not the opinions of even your favorite preacher or theologian. It's better just to read the Bible and then go and pull a book and, and say what it reads about. Oh, pulling a book? What is that? Well, check it in on Google, whatever you want to do. Go to logos online. It's up to you. But my point is, it doesn't matter who said it. That is the context of John 3.16. The new birth. The work of God in the soul of a person. Now. John 3.16 speaks about the love of God. For God so loved the world. I love it when scripture messes up with my theology. Oh the world is really not the world. No. 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 The world can't be the world, because in my theology, there's a limitation to that love. Oh really, so what does the world mean there? Well, the world means there, the world of the elect. Huh, okay. And what else? Well, it means the world of the believers. Huh. So it ends up that God loves only believers, and then in my view, believers are only those who believe like me. And then comes the old joke of speak softly in heaven so because the Reformed Baptists or the Presbyterians or the Roman Catholics or whoever, they believe they are the only ones who are saved. So don't speak too loud so they don't get disappointed. Right? No. The text says, God so loved the world. The world he created and the world he cursed on account of the sin of Adam. We heard that this morning. He loved it. He loved it so much but there was no other solution to undo the mess that Adam made in the garden and God had to send a second Adam and die for the sins of the world. Jesus didn't die for the sins of the world. Well, explain that to John who wrote it in 1 John two one. See, when you talk to me, you're talking to the Reformed Baptist legalistic stickler. And believe me that I cringe when I hear that. Oh, he died for the sins of the world. He says, no, no, he died for the sins of his people. Well, yes, I believe that too. But 1 John 2, 1 says he died for the sins of the world. And sometimes I love it when the text makes me think hard in my tenets of theology. The text says what it says. I may have deductions about other things I believe, but my deductions can never be imposed on the text. Let God be God and let the scriptures speak for themselves. And when it doesn't jive, keep reading, keep studying, or keep praying for more light. And I'm going to leave it at that. Now, let's talk about the love of God. Because that's the whole point. Does God love me just as I am? Does God receive me just as I am? 1 John 4.8 is one of the simplest, greatest, most beautiful passages in Scripture. God is love. It says, in the fabric of what God is, in the essence of what the divine is. Whatever it is or He is that we can say about what is God. And and those of you who teach the catechism to your children, a spirit without body or parts, infinite in all of His beings and His works and His attributes. Whatever He is, the Bible says the Holy Spirit moved John to write God is essentially ontologically in the very fabric of his being, love. Does that God love me as I am? Well, for the Greeks there were four types of love. One of them is God. General, common love, storge. The love I have for my children, the love I have for my parents, the love I have for one another, the love I have for you, that you have for me. Love in general. I keep telling my dog Simba, I love you all the time. That's storge. It's love in its general sense. Then the Greeks had another word that, that kind of brought it down. It was the word philos. Philadelphia comes from there. Filial love comes from that same root. It is a love of brothers. It is brotherly love. It is siblings love. It is camaraderie love. There is an element of, of endearment. Of closeness. Of proximity. Of being of the same kin. And then there is a word that is not in scripture. It is a word Eros. Eros. From where we get erotic. And it's that sexual attraction that in the context of marriage is necessary, holy, and biblical. That sexual attraction that makes you ladies run from your husbands many times. My wife this morning chased me away with a blower. I was bothering her while she was doing her dress. And I started bothering and she put the blower on me to chase me away as if I were some kind of pest. Well, she did it. Yes, because that is eros. That is erotic love. And it's healthy to have in, a, in marriage. It is biblical. It is godly. It is honoring to God. And then there's this word, agape. Agape is the love of sacrifice. The love of giving. It is a love that does not involve so much sentiments, feelings attraction. But it is a love that does regardless or in spite of. When I give premarital counseling I have to say when I used to give, right? When I was active in ministry my wife tells me don't say that, you're still active. Well when I gave premarital counseling to the young couples in our church or to others from other churches, I always asked them tell me how many fights have you had? Huh? Yeah, how many times have you fought? Oh, never. Well, then you're not ready for marriage. <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah, people fight. If you haven't fought, you've either been too, not too long of a time together, or you, if you've been a long time together, you're just two, two actors, and two hypocrites, and you're pretending. Because two different people will fight. And the whole thing is, I want to marry this person in spite of, not because of. When you come to the point of loving... In spite of, then we are getting into the realm of agape love. This is God's love. That is the love of John 3.16. It's not an emotional love. It is a love that immediately is proven by an act. God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? His own. Only begotten Son. Only. Of the same kind. God of God. God of God. Light of light. The Son of God. As the Creed puts him. He gave that one. Jesus said, I am the monogenes Theos. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. What does that mean? What it says? That Jesus is God in the bosom of God who came down to earth as the gift of the Father. That agape is the love of God, which in Scripture is unilateral, is undeserved. It's monergistic. Mono one ergos. Remember, children, when you did your physics in 8th grade? How do you measure power in ergs? It's a measure of power. Well, that word, monergistic, means that the power, the activity, the efficacy, the essence, the flowing of this love comes only from God. It's not a give give and take, or give or take. It is not a tit for tat. It is not that, oh, God saw down the tunnels of time, who were the nice people, and who, who had a soft heart, and He decided to love them. No. He just loved the world. The cursed world. The world that is under the evil one, in the language of John, and in the language of Paul. The world filled with children of wrath who do not deserve anything else but judgment and wrath. God loved them to the point of giving his only begotten. He loved Israel, the nation. And he says in Deuteronomy 7 7, I didn't love you because you were the most powerful and attractive of the nations of the earth. On the contrary, I loved you because you were the smallest of all the nations of the earth. And when you go to Israel, it's surprising. I mean, we have this idea, oh, it must be green and lush and fertile. It's a desert. It's ugly. It's not a nice place at all. I mean, it has a lot of memories and a lot of things that are meaningful to us. But but that's not the place that you say, wow remember having this tour guide, he was going to take, take us to a, to a garden that was kept by, uh, how do you say, Carmelitas? Carmelites. He says, oh, it's one of the most beautiful gardens here in Israel. It's very lush and green. And we go to it and he says, what? I mean, if my, if, if my guy who does my, my lawn does that job, we're going to have a fight. But for them it was lush and green. Well, God says, not because you were the the greatest and the most numerous and powerful of the nations of the earth, I loved you. No, exactly because of the contrary. Because you were the smallest and the most despicable. Jeremiah 31.3 Through the prophet God tells Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Eternal love. And that's why I poured out to you my mercy. That's the love of Ephesians 1.6. When Paul says that God loved us before the foundation of the world, everybody agrees on that. Yes, of course, yes, He loved because He's eternal. He's loved us always. Yes, He saw my good heart and loved me. But Paul gives a reason why. It's not because of anything you and I have. He says He did it because of the kind intention of His will. It all came out from Him. Nothing in us to provoke it. It is completely unmerited love. Romans 5.8, I think Troy mentioned it this morning. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die to finish what we started. Christ didn't die as He saw our effort in becoming cleaner and purer. As He saw our good intentions to love God. Because we had none. No, while we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. While we were yet sinners. God showed mercy. Christ died for us. That's why salvation can't be lost. If Christ purchased it on the cross, and God ordained it before the world was made, how can I lose it? If the only contribution I had to my salvation was my sin. It is sheer ignorance of Scripture and of the plan of redemption to say such a thing. 1 Corinthians one 26 through 26-29, one of my favorite passages. Whenever I feel down, <laughs> because, and that happens frequently, surrounded by brilliant people, surrounded by smart people, surrounded by successful people, and I look at myself and say, oh boy. But then I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians one twenty-six through 26-29. Consider, brethren, your calling. There's not many noble among you. There's not many wise among you. Not many strong among you. Because God chose the weak, the base things of the world, the unwise, the foolish things in order to undo those who think they are something so that no one may boast in his presence. And most importantly, so that whomever boasts, let him boast in the Lord. Jesus is our wisdom. Jesus is our sanctification. Jesus is our redemption. Jesus is our justification. The love of God is built and designed in such a way that if there is anything that I will boast of, it's going to be Jesus. No to those who visit us, perhaps you've heard the expression, the doctrines of grace. We are a church who believes in the doctrines of grace. And what are the doctrines of grace? instead of getting it to you from a theological book or perspective, and we can do that at another occasion, I'll say to you in the words of 1 John, the doctrines of grace are these, that we love God because He loved us first. Anything you feel toward God, any inclination you may have toward Him, be assured of this. He brought you first, loved you first, gave you life, regenerated you, made you a new spirit through His Spirit, and now you love Him. And that's the way it works. Those are the doctrines of grace. It is all of Him, and through Him, and by Him. That's why to Him alone is the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. This is not a shared thing. Oh, well, it's God, but hey, me too! It's God. It's God. And only God. And sometimes that's not too encouraging, because what's in it for me? What's in it for you is God. Psalmist says, you are my greatest good. You are my highest treasure. I don't have anything else. And as Asaph said, I don't desire anything else on earth but you. And that's the name of the game. Now, what are the caveats about God's love? That we may confuse the love of God and the patience of God with the justice of God. I'd like to use the example of the trooper that stops you because you're speeding and there you go you see the lights, you stop first question, what is it? ah, your experience in being stopped huh? do you know why did I stop you? you said that very quickly yes, I know (laughs) if you say I don't know you're dead (laughs) you have to say yes sir I I was coming fast, I'm sorry my bad and perhaps you can get a warning you can be let go as this one has been let go maybe 10 times I I've been stopped twice in my life two tickets she's been stopped I don't know countless times no tickets but that's another story now when the trooper lets you go he's not being just He's not being righteous. He's not applying the penalty your violation deserves. He's being kind to you, but in an unjust manner. See, God is not a trooper. He says in the third commandment, I shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Here's a reason. Because God will not hold him... Guiltless, who takes his name in vain. God will not hold the guilty guiltless because he is righteous and just. If we despise that characteristic that makes us confuse God, his long suffering, his patience, then what we do is we're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Not my words. Paul's words in Romans 2, four. So the caveat is, do not confuse, as R.C. Sproul would say, would say, and it's my conclusion, God's love of benevolence with God's redeeming love. Because God's redeeming love has a condition. God's benevolent love doesn't have any and God's benevolence is that he has good will towards all. Paul and Peter both say that the Lord does not want anyone anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. Question, has everybody come to repentance? No. The wide door that leads to destruction is taken by many. So God does have a good intention for all. He doesn't want them to perish. But many will perish. Do not confuse God's love of beneficence. Or beneficence. If I'm setting the wrong emphasis in the wrong syllable. But you know the meaning. That is the love that makes the sun rise over Righteous and unrighteous, and the rain to fall over good and evil. The sun doesn't rise in Kendall any better than in Miami Beach or South Beach for the matter. No, because God's benevolence is manifest to all. But there's a love that God doesn't have to all. His, his love of complacency. What is that love of complacency when Jesus was being baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove? There was a voice from heaven. The Father thundered and said, Behold my Son in whom I am well pleased. Closest illustration I have to that is when you see your children playing or performing, whether they are in arts or in sports. And your eyes are only in your boy, or your girl, and they can be as bad as I was in sports. You're standing there doing nothing, but that's my boy. That's my girl, and I love him. It's the one I am well pleased. And even if they touch the ball, oh, Jamie, go! No! And all they did was touch the ball. Okay, because your complacency is in them. God has that for only one person. Ain't you, ain't me. It's Jesus. He said it of his son. But then in Jesus, he has a multitude that no one can count according to Revelation 5. Because in Jesus, Paul says, we are accepted in the beloved. That beloved is Jesus. And as we are united to Christ, in our salvation, in our redemption, in our expiation, in our propitiation. And you learned this word, those words this morning. Then we too are pleasing in His sight. And that is the consolation of a believer. So, does God love me and accept me just as I am? Well, yes. Come as you are. Go to Him as you are. You don't need to prepare yourself. You don't need to learn certain doctrines to come to Him. You don't need to cleanse yourself. You don't need to improve your life. Oh, you know what? I drink a lot. I need to stop drinking. Come. Come smelling. Come drinking. Come eating. Come. Come and be washed. You hungry? (laughs) There's bread there. You're thirsty? There's water there come to the fountain and drink and eat and be saved. But no, God does not accept any of us unconditionally. Because the Bible also says that God is angry at sinners all day long. His wrath is provoked daily by the wicked. He has no pleasure in the feet who run to shed blood. So what do we do with that then? The condition is that He commands all men, repent. Repent. That statement of Isaiah 55, I love it. Perhaps you if you were born and raised in the States, you cannot relate to it. But those of us who were raised in Latin countries or perhaps in the Middle East you can relate to that. There was this guy when we were playing we were playing ball on the streets he would be selling pastelitos. And we would be playing ball but we would hear this sound from the distance. Calientes! That was him calling. The hot pastelitos are coming and the game stopped. Do you know that God does that in Isaiah 55? Read it in your Bibles. It says ho! Ho! It's a shout! It's a shout of a street vendor. Hey, come! Come to the waters and drink! Come buy bread without money. Come buy food without spending anything. Come! That's the condition. Repentance. Why? Because He is just. And He will not bypass His righteousness. Therefore... Somebody has to take my place. Jesus did. He bore the wrath of God. You heard it this morning in Sunday school. He went through hell in our place. That's why the cross is the crux of the gospel. The cross and the resurrection are the gospel. I know that today to be nice and cool in church, if you want to have it filled, you have to preach a nice sermon, have a handsome guy, I could make it. You have to be handsome, young, tall, 6'2", six 6'3". Six I'm not going to make it. But then you have all these nice talks. and I've been to those churches, and you say, what, what was this about? You cannot have this without the gospel. You cannot have this without the cross, without Christ, without seeing Him bearing the brunt of God's wrath for our sins. And be in him the just. And the one who justifies sinners by faith. And by faith alone. Knowing the fear of God. Phobos is the word. From where we get phobia. Knowing the fear of God. We persuade men. Because it is a terrifying thing. Phobaron. Same root, fearful thing, to fall into the hands of the living God. But thank God through Jesus, or for Jesus, because in Him we can run to Him and be saved. So the church is not God's trophy wife. You see these older dudes like me, well not like me because they have to have a lot of money which I don't have with these models as wives. They say, oh, that's his trophy wife. Well, the church is not God's trophy wife. We are Gomer, Hosea's prostitute wife. We are the Samaritan woman. We are Rahab the harlot. We are Ruth the Moabite. That's who we are. But we are trophies of his grace because of Christ. So my conclusion is Romans eleven twenty two. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. Severity toward those who take for granted His kindness, His long-suffering, His patience, His love. But kindness to you if you continue in that kindness. May God bless His Word. Father, bless Your Word and use it for Your purposes and for Your glory. May we see Your love, see Your grace, see Your kindness in the light of who we are and what we deserve. And in the light of how much, how infinitely much You have loved Those for whom Christ died, who come to Him in repentance and faith. In His name we pray. Amen.